Have you ever have you ever heard the phrase you come from good stock? You ever heard that you come from good stock? Uh, when I hear that, I think of cattle, which I don't know if that's a compliment, right? When you, but apparently the word stock actually comes from an old English word that refers to the trunk of a tree is what it means when you say you come from a good stock. So you're, you are a branch off of a sturdy tree is kind of what it means. And you, and you know what it means is it's a, it's a reference to your, your family, your, your people, the people that you come from and how tough or strong or great or good they were and the, the confidence that what was in them must be in you. I was trying to figure out what the word stock actually means and I came across uh, this story by this guy, he was a freshman in college, he went to college, and uh, he meets an upperclassman girl, and she says, oh, I know who you are, I know your family, you come from really good stock. And then apparently based on that, she indicated that if he were to ask, she might go on a date with him, okay, just based on the fact that he came from good stock. And he said this offended him so badly that she would judge him just based on his family, and then he said, of course, I dated her anyway because you don't turn down an upperclassman, right? I love that. Okay. You come from good stock. What was in them, your people, must be in you. I was thinking about that recently. I was, I was talking with a friend who was going through a really hard time. And she told me, Eric, you know me. I cannot do hard things. I cannot do hard things. And immediately, I started thinking about her people. The people that I know she comes from, the people all around her, her family, and I thought, yeah, you can. Because I know your people, and I know that what's in them is in you, and I know for sure you can do hard things. And then that got me thinking, not just about her immediate family, but about her, her broader Christian family. This family that spans generations and generations, centuries and centuries, that's spread from one nation to another, I mean, spans nations to this global family that she's a part of that has these incredible people who did extraordinarily hard things, and those are her people. That's important to remember. That's the stock she actually comes from. I want you to think about that with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7 today. Let me set up Acts chapter 7 for you. I want you to be thinking about your stock today, your stock. Acts chapter 7 is the story of Stephen. And it begins in Acts chapter 6, actually, the last few verses of Acts chapter 6. Stephen is chosen at the beginning of Acts chapter 6 to be one of the guys who takes care of the widows who've been getting overlooked in the early church. So he makes sure he's one of the guys who's assigned to make sure that widows have what they need, food, resources, supplies. By the end of chapter 6, he's presumably still taking care of the widows, but he's also performing miraculous signs, and he's preaching and debating with the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish leaders don't like this. And so a group of them lie by saying that he has been lying, so they're lying about lying, they're lying, saying that he has been lying about the temple, about Moses, about God's people, that he's been spreading lies about all of that really important stuff to them. And Acts chapter 7, verse 1 begins with the question, Stephen, is that true? 
So the Jewish leaders have brought him in. They're going to grill him, and they ask him, is that true? Have you been lying about God, God's temple, God's people? Have you been lying about that? Okay. And then the rest of Acts chapter 7 is his response. And I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read his response. What he basically does is summarize the whole Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 12 with Abraham, going through the patriarchs like Moses and other leaders, Jacob, Joseph, all these wonderful men of God, um, going through exile, slavery, exile again, culminating with the arrival. So the whole sermon is kind of just summarizing all of the Old Testament and how all of the Old Testament is pointing us towards, preparing us for the moment when the righteous one the one we've all been waiting on who will make each of us righteous by his righteousness when that one arrives. So it's a brilliant sermon about how everything's pointing to that moment. But then he ends the sermon by saying, that righteous one, you killed him. Uh, have, have any of you ever read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Like this is not how you do it. But it's true. It's true. And so they hear this, that they have killed the one, according to Stephen, that God's entire story has been pointing to. And we pick up in uh, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. And they gnashed their teeth at him. They're grinding their teeth. They're so bad. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, paid attention to that. He looked up to heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see that? He said it twice. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come back to that. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. After Jesus and his death on a Roman cross, Stephen is the first Christian martyr, the first. What does martyr mean? Well, when we talk about a martyr, we're talking about somebody who dies for their faith, who actually dies for what they believe. But the word itself doesn't mean to die. What the word means is a witness. And so Christians latched onto that word martyr to describe somebody who dies for their faith because they believed that they were a witness in two ways. One is that they were a blood witness to Jesus Christ. That's what they called him, a blood witness. And that meant that by their death, by the shedding of their blood, that they testified about Jesus. They were like a witness in a trial for Jesus. And they testified to the watching world that we are willing to die for this because we believe so strongly that death is not the end. Because Jesus has been raised, we too will be, and so we will die to prove it. So they were witnesses to the world about Jesus. But they were also witnesses in a second sense. When you read these stories, including the story of Stephen, and you read other accounts of martyrs in the early church, 
they often have an encounter, and usually a visual encounter, with Jesus at the moment of their death. Like Stephen, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God as he is dying on Jesus' behalf. And so they witness Christ. And so this reminds me of what Paul says. You remember this in Philippians 3.10. Paul says this. He says, I want to know Christ, have an experience with Christ. I want to see him, know him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And there's this clue here that when we suffer, we see Jesus more clearly because we're becoming like the one who suffered. You see that? And so we treat that passage kind of symbolically or metaphorically that when you see Jesus, you can actually become a witness of Jesus in a special way. But it's worth, it's worth remembering there are people who experience that passage not metaphorically or symbolically, but literally, who literally became like Jesus in his death. Literally including Paul, who goes on to be martyred. In fact, we think that in the first few centuries of the church, the first couple hundred years of the church, there were between one and three million people, Christians, who were martyred for what they believed. Between one and three million. Uh, Did you ever see the movie Gladiator years ago? Did y'all see that movie? I love that movie so much. And uh, this was back in the time when you watched movies on DVDs and they had the deleted scenes. And I remember my dad sat me down and we watched one of the deleted scenes in Gladiator that had been taken out of the movie, but it was a movie of, I think, a mother and child who were being martyred in the arena. It was taken out of the movie. But my dad used that to talk to me about, hey, Eric, did you know that there were actually people who died for what they believed about Jesus? And it's true, between one and three million, just in the first couple of years of the church. So I want to tell you about a couple of those people today. And the reason I want to tell you about them is, like Stephen, these people, whether you remember it or not, are part of your stock. And I think there's a problem in the modern Western world where we are so distantly removed from these stories of those who've given their life for faith that we kind of forget that these people are our heritage And then maybe what was in them is also in me. Let me tell you a story or two. You ever heard of the guy named Polycarp? I think we've got Polycarp's picture here. Um, Polycarp was what we call an apostolic father, which means he wasn't an apostle himself, but that he was trained by, mentored by the apostles of Jesus Christ. So they rubbed off on him, and so he was apostolic or apostol-ish. He was an apostolic father who led the early church. He lived to be 86 years old, which is pretty old for the time. And when he's 86, a Roman magistrate brings him in on charges that he's a Christian and is leading this group of people we now call the church. And he brings Polycarp in, and he, because he's an old guy, you know, he's basically an old grandpa, sweet old guy, he really wants to let him off the hook. And so he's giving him these opportunities to recant. And what we mean by recant is that you declare that Jesus is not the Lord and that Caesar is the Lord. That's what it meant by recant. So to get out of being killed for your faith, all you have to do is say, Jesus is not the Lord, Caesar is. That's all you have to do. You get to save your life. He's got this old guy. He really wants to save him, the magistrate. And so he says, all you got to do is recant. And Polycarp, who is tied to a stake, 
over um, a bundle of wood responds like this. He says, 80 and six years I have served him and never once has he wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Come then, bring what thou will. And the magistrate's heart's going out to this guy and he gives him another chance. He says, just bless Caesar. And Polycarp's response is so great. He says, since you vainly strive to make me bless Caesar, pretending you don't know my real character, hear me clearly, I am a Christian. Now, if you desire to learn of the Christian faith, assign me a day and you shall hear all about it. I love that. And this enrages the magistrate. He says, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp says, bring them on. The magistrate says, unless you repent, I will tame you with fire. And Polycarp says, why do you delay? Do what you will. And at that, they lit the fire beneath him and Polycarp was burned at the stake. Died for his faith. Let me tell you about these two heroes of our heritage. This is Perpetua and Felicitas. I think we have a picture of them, or Felicity, sometimes she's called Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua was, this is the third century, okay, a couple hundred years later. Perpetua was a noble woman, but she's young. She's probably a teenager, maybe early 20s, but her dad is a nobleman, so she's wealthy. She comes from a well-to-do family, but she's been studying about Jesus to give her life to Jesus in baptism. So this is discovered and she's arrested and she's taken into a dungeon. She had recently given birth though. She's got a young baby and she's actually still nursing this young baby. And so she gets special permission to bring her baby into a Roman dungeon with her so that she can wean him off. And so her dad comes to the prison cell, to the, the bars on the door and he, and he's, remember he's a rich man. He's got all kinds of connections and he begs her to just, Declare that she's not a Christian and she can walk free from here to save his grandchild and to save herself. He begs her to say that she's not a Christian. And she says this to her dad. She says, I cannot call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. Man, that that grips me. And we're, like I've talked about before, our vision is to build up the next generation. And a big part of that is being very clear on who they are, even under pressure. And here she is, threatened with death, will not get to be the mother to her child. And she says, I cannot say I'm something other than what I am, a Christian. And she's joined by Felicitas. If y'all might throw that picture back up there one more time, or Felicity. Felicity is a servant girl when she's arrested as well, and she's in the same dungeon as Perpetua. And she actually arrives in the dungeon pregnant herself, And she's there in the dungeon so long that she gives birth, in fact, prematurely because they had prayed for that, um, so that she could give birth before her death. She gives birth prematurely in the dungeon itself, and a Roman guard overhears her giving birth, and she's screaming out in pain, and the Roman guard snickers at her, and he comes up and he tells her, if you can't handle this pain, you will not be able to handle what we are going to do to you in the arena. And this is what she says back to him. Listen to this. She says, now it's I that suffer what I suffer, but then there will be another in me who will suffer for me because I suffer for him. 
Now it's I that suffer what I suffer, but then there will be another in me, she says. They're taken into the arena and animals are released on them. The animals don't kill them. And so this Roman soldier comes out to face these two women who get on their knees and he is forced to kill them, but he's shaking and he can't do it. And Perpetua reaches forward, grabs his sword and lifts it to her throat. Did you know you come from people like that? who believed so strongly that Jesus is Lord of all, that they would die for it. Now we hear those stories of Stephen and Polycarp and Perpetua and Felicitas, and we think to ourselves, yeah, but they were extraordinary. I can never do that. Like what they have in them, I do not have in me. Well, let me bring you back to the passage here. Let's work through this passage itself. And then I want to ask you if you have in you what they had in them. Look at this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, faces his death. Full of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say Stephen was especially strong. It doesn't say he was especially brave, especially courageous. What does it say? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. And what we know from Acts chapter 2, and we know this from other passages in Scripture, but if we're going to stick in Acts, we know from Acts chapter 2 when Peter is preaching the first Christian sermon ever, he says that the promise of the Holy Spirit is not just for you who are right here hearing my voice, it's for everybody who will come for generations and generations. Let's throw that next passage up there. This is Acts chapter 2. Let me, you'll see this here in a second. You will receive power. When the gift of the Holy Spirit comes on you. And this promise is for who? For you, for your children, for all who are far off. You see that generational hand-me-down taking place. For all whom the Lord our God will call. The same thing fueling Stephen as he faced death for his faith fuels who? You and me. I'm not, I'm kind of hesitant to admit this in the South, but I'm not a big NASCAR fan. Uh, but I was kind of curious about this the other day, uh, about the gas that they use in NASCAR. I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I looked this up. Did you know that every single car on the NASCAR racetrack is using the same gas? Did you know that? And their engines are basically the same too. There's some small modifications they might make to their engine, but all of them are running on the same gas. It's Seneco Green E15 98 Octane Unleaded High Performance. And I, was, and I just thought how profound that is, right? Like the same thing fueling Stephen, Polycarp, Perpetua, Felicitas is the very same thing fueling you and me. Comforting us, strengthening us, counseling us. The same spirit of God in them is in you. You are actually no different in that. You are running on the same stuff. Same spirit. But then look, look at this with me. Look at the next thing here. We see this twice. We'll just look at one of the passages here, but he says it back to back. As he is dying, remember that martyrs often witnessed Jesus himself in the moment of their death. Well, as he's dying, he has a vision of Jesus. And where is Jesus? Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Now, we know from, from Scripture that Jesus going to the right hand of God doesn't just mean that when Jesus got to heaven, there was a seat open on the heavenly couch right by God and it happened to be at his right side. Okay. It's not what it means. We know from Hebrews and we know also from this passage in Romans. Let's throw this up. This is from Romans right here. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, 
is where now? At the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for us. What that means is he's looking down on us with God. We're looking down at you and at you and at you. And he's like, God, that guy right there, he's mine. I want you to watch out for him. That woman right over there, or that woman right over there, I want you to protect them. I want you to defend them. They're mine. They belong to me. That's, that's what this is about. Jesus is now, because he's raised at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. What Stephen sees in the moment of his death is that Jesus is defending him. And you and I have that same ally doing the same for us. I heard a story on the radio the other day. It was about a woman who 20 years before, she was in high school and she was bullied every day by this group of girls, every single day. Just could not get them to stop bullying her. Um, her life was cruel. She hated going to school, hated herself. She was tortured by these girls. And she said that one day this new girl came to school and she was beautiful and immediately she was popular. And so all those mean girls gravitated to her. And she thought this, this new girl would never know her from anybody else, okay? But she said one day that group of girls approached her and they were going to do what they always do and they were going to pick on her and say cruel things about her. And they started, but this new girl stopped them. She says, why are y'all doing that? Stop. That's gross. And she said after that, those girls never bothered her another day of her school career. <laughs> never bothered her again. And so 20 years later, she had got on this radio program because she was trying to find that woman now and thank her because she had changed her life. And what she said, and it struck me, and I remembered it, she said, what I learned is if you have the right person advocating for you, it can change everything. It can change everything, just like that. And so what we see here in the story of Stephen, the story of these great martyrs, is not only that they're filled with the same fuel, the Holy Spirit, the same fuel that you and I are, but they have the same advocate that you and I do. And having the right advocate can change everything. Can change everything. Let me, let me show you two more things here quickly, though. As he dies... He says this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see that? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it's easy kind of to gloss right by this, but what I want you to see is from the first person who dies as a believer, presumably, from the first person who dies as a believer, Christians are so convinced that there will be a life after this one in which they will be with God the Father and Jesus Christ, that at the moment of his death, he's confident of it. Look at that. At the moment of his death, the first guy who dies for his faith, presumably the first Christian to die, is so confident that death will not be the end that as he takes his last breath, he says to God, okay, God, now starts the rest of the story. Have my spirit. Now this hope, is what has fueled Christians to do extraordinary things throughout the history of the church. I think about early plagues that swept through Rome. When all the pagans fled Rome as other people were dying, millions of people were dying, who stayed? The Christians. And the, the pagans fled because they believed this life was all they had and they had to defend this life at all costs. The Christians stayed because they knew this life was not the end and no matter what happened to them, there would be another life. 
You're filled with the same fuel, the same spirit. You have the same ally interceding for you, and you have the same hope. You can do very hard things. And that brings me there to the end. He says this. He says, Lord Jesus, as he dies, don't hold this sin against them. And that reminds you of who? It reminds you of Jesus at the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In 2007 in Malatya, Turkey, there was a missionary and two Turkish Christians who were martyred. 2007. Some men who claimed that they wanted to come for a Bible study met these men at their workplace, bound them, tortured them, and killed them. Two Turkish Christians and the missionary. The day after, the missionary's widow was just beset with grief, and on the door, she hears a knock, and she opens the door, and it's reporters, and they want to talk to her about what happened, Turkish reporters, and she doesn't want to talk to them, but they're insistent, and so she prays to God. She says, Father, give me something to say, and what she hears is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so she's interviewed in front of millions on live TV, and she sits down with these Turkish reporters, and she says, the first thing she says is, I forgive the men who did this to my husband. And the reporter can't make sense of this. This is a part of the world that's not big on forgiveness. And the reporter means, what do you mean that you forgive them? And she says, well, I have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. How can I not forgive others? Shares the gospel. Okay, because Jesus has died and has been raised, you have been filled with the Spirit of God. Because Jesus has died and been raised, he has gone to the right hand of the Father and every single day, every moment of your life, he is interceding for you every single day. Okay, because Jesus died and was raised, you have hope that this life, as hard as it may be, won't be the last of your life. And so because Jesus died and was raised, you can do extraordinarily hard things. You can. Let me pray for you. God, I'm thankful for your people here. Would you fill them, God, with your spirit? God, would you strengthen them with the knowledge that your son Jesus intercedes for us every day? Would you fill them with a hope for a life beyond this one? Would you enable them to do hard things for your sake and for your glory? We thank you, God, for your son Jesus who died and was raised that that might be possible. It's in his name we pray. Amen.